CD4 Out in the anteroom, Fred Colon stood very still for a while until his heartbeat wound down from a whine to at least a purr. It had, on the whole, gone quite well. Very well. Amazingly well, really. His lordship had practically taken him into his confidence. He'd called him a man to watch. Fred wondered why he'd been so scared of officering all these years. There was nothing to it, really, once you got the bull between your teeth. If only he'd started years ago. Of course, he, he wouldn't hear a word said about Mr. Vimes, who should certainly be looking after himself in those dangerous foreign parts. But, well, Fred Colon had been a sergeant when Sam Vimes was a rookie, hadn't he? It was only his natural deference that had held him back all these years. When Sam Vimes came back, and with the patrician there to put in a good word for him, Fred Colon would definitely be on the promotion ladder. Only to full captain, of course, he thought as he strutted down the stairs. With great care because strutting is usually impossible while walking downwards. He wouldn't want to outrank Captain Carrot. That would be... wrong. This fact shows that however crazed with power someone may be, a tiny instinct for self-preservation always remains. He got the chickens first, thought Gaspode, winding his way through the legs of the crowd. Amazing! They hadn't stopped to eat them, though. Gaspode had been stuffed into the other saddlebag and would not like to have to go through ten miles like that again, especially so close to the smell of roast chicken. It looked as though there was a market going on, and the wolf-baiting had been saved as a sort of closing ceremony. Hurdles had been arranged in a rough circle. Men were holding the collars of dogs, big, heavy, unpleasant-looking dogs, which were already wild with excitement and deranged stupidity. There was a coop by the hurdles. Gaspode made his way to it and peered through the wooden bars at the heap of matted grey fur in the shadows. "'Looks like you're in a spot of strife, friend,' he said. Contrary to legend, and there are so many legends about wolves, although mostly there are legends about the way men think about wolves, a trapped wolf is more likely to whine and fawn than go wild with rage. But this one must have felt it had nothing to lose. Foam-flecked jaws snapped at the bars. "'Where's the rest of your pack, then?' said Gaspode. No pack shorting. Ah, a lone wolf, eh? The worst kind, Gaspode thought. Roast chicken isn't worth this, he muttered. Out loud, he growled. You seen any other wolves round here? Yes. Good. You want to get out of here alive? I'll kill them all. Right, right, but there's dozens of them, you see. You won't stand a chance. They'll tear you to bits. Dogs are a lot nastier than wolves. In the shade, the eyes narrowed. Why are you telling me, dog? Because I'm here to help you, see. You do what I tell you, you could be out of here in half an hour. Otherwise, you're a rug on someone's floor tomorrow. Your choice. Of course, there might not be enough of you left to make a rug. The wolf listened to the baying of the dogs. There was no mistaking their intent. What did you have in mind? it said. A few minutes later the crowd was gently nudged aside as Carrot edged his horse towards the pen. The hubbub died. A sword on a horse always commands respect. The rider is often a mere courtesy detail, but in this case it was not so. The watch had put the final swell and polish on Carrot's muscles. And there was that faint smile. It was the sort you backed away from. "'Good day. Who is in charge here?' he said. There was a certain amount of comparison of status, and the man cautiously raised his hand. "'I'm the deputy bear, Your Honour,' he said. 
And what is this event? We'm about to bait a wolf, Your Honour. Really? I myself own a wolfhound of unusual strength and prowess. May I test it against the creature? There was more mumbling amongst the bystanders, the general consensus being, why not? Anyway, there was that smile. Go ahead, Your Honour, said the deputy mayor. Carrot stuck his fingers in his mouth and whistled. The townspeople watched in astonishment as Gaspode walked out from between their legs and sat down. Then the laughter started. It died away after a while because the faint smile didn't. Is there a problem? said Carrot. It'll get torn limb from limb. Well, what do you care what happens to a wolf? Laughter broke out again. The deputy mayor had a feeling he was being got at. Sure dog, mister, he said, shrugging. The little dog barked. And to make it interesting, we'll wager a pound of steak, said Carrot. The dog barked again. Two pounds of steak, Carrot corrected himself. Oh, I reckon it's going to be interesting enough as it is, said the deputy mayor. The smile was beginning to prey on his nerves. All right, boys, fetch the wolf. The creature was dragged into the ring of hurdles, slavering and snarling. No, don't tie it up, said Carrot, as a man went to wrap the halter round a post. It'll get away if we don't. It won't have a chance, believe me. They looked at the smile, dragged the muzzle from the wolf and leapt to safety. Now, just in case you are having second thoughts about our agreement, said Gaspode, the wolf, I suggest you look at the face of the bloke on the horse, right? The wolf glanced up. It saw the wolverine smile on the face of the rider. Gaspode barked. The wolf yelped and rolled over. The crowd waited, and then... Is that it? Yes, that's how it normally goes, said Carrot. It's a special bark, you see. All the blood in the victim congeals in an instant out of sheer terror. It hasn't even worried the body. What, said Carrot, would be the point of that? He got down from the horse, pushed his way into the ring, picked up the body of the wolf and flung it across the saddle. It grunted, I heard it, someone began. That was probably air being expressed from the corpse, said Carrot. The smile still hadn't gone, and at that point it suggested very subtly that Carrot had heard the last gasp of hundreds of corpses. Yeah, that's right, said a voice in the crowd. Everyone knows that. And now what about the stake for the brave little doggy? The people looked round to see who had said this. None of them looked down because... Dogs can't talk. We can forego the stake, said Carrot, mounting up. No, wait, no you can't, said the voice. A deal's a deal. Who was risking their life here? That's what I'd like to know. Come, Gaspard. Whining and grumbling, the little dog emerged from the crowd and trailed after the horse. It wasn't until they were at the edge of the town square that one of the people said, Oi, what the hell happened there? And the spell broke. But by then, both horse and dog were travelling really really fast. Vimes hated and despised the privileges of rank, but they had this to be said for them. At least they meant you could hate and despise them in comfort. Willikins would arrive at an inn an hour before Vimes's coach, and, with an arrogance that Vimes would never dare employ, take over several rooms and install Vimes's own cook in the kitchen. Vimes complained about this to Inigo. "'But you see, Your Grace, you're not here as an individual, but as Ankh Morpork. "'When people look at you, they see the city.' <clears throat> "'They do? Shall I stop washing?' 
That is very droll, sir. But you see, sir, you and the city are one. <coughs> if you are insulted, Ankh-Morpork is insulted. If you befriend, Ankh-Morpork befriends. Really? What happens when I go to the lavatory? That's up to you, sir. <coughs> At breakfast next morning, Vimes sliced the top off a boiled egg, thinking, This is Ankh-Morpork slicing the top off a boiled egg. If I cut my toast into soldiers, we're probably at war. Corporal Littlebottom entered carefully and saluted. Your message came back, sir, she said, handing him a scrap of paper. From Sergeant Strong in the arm, I've deciphered it for you. Er, uh, the scone from the museum's been found, sir. Well, that's the other shoe dropped, said Vimes. I was worried there for a moment. Er, uh, in fact, Constable Shoe is bothered about it, said Cheery. It's a bit hard to follow what he says, but he seems to think someone made a copy of it. What? A fake of a fake? What good's that? I really couldn't say, sir. Your other surmise was correct. Vimes glanced at the paper. Ha! Thanks, Cheery. We'll be down shortly. You're humming, Sam, said Sybil, after a while. That means something awful is going to happen to somebody. Wonderful thing, technology, said Vimes buttering a slice of toast. I can see it as its uses. And when you grin in that shiny sort of way, it means someone's playing silly buggers and doesn't know you've just thrown a six. I don't know what you mean, dear. It's probably the country air agreeing with me. Lady Sybil put down her teacup. Sam? Yes, dear? This is probably not the best time to mention it, but you know I told you I went to see old Mrs Content. Well, she says... There was another knock at the door. Lady Sybil sighed. This time it was Inigo who entered. And we should be leaving, Your Grace, if you don't mind. I would like us to be at Slake by lunchtime and through the pass at Willinus before dark. <clears throat> Do we have to rush so? sighed Sybil. The pass is slightly dangerous, said Inigo. Somewhat lawless. <clears throat> Only somewhat, said Vimes. "'I will just feel happier when it is behind us,' said Inigo. "'It would be a good idea if the second coach follows us closely "'and your men stay alert, Your Grace.' "'They teach you tactics in Lord Vetinari's political office, do they, Inigo?' said Vimes. "'Just common sense, <clears throat> sir. "'Why don't we wait until tomorrow before attempting the pass?' "'With respect, Your Grace, I suggest not.' For one thing, the weather is worsening, and I'm sure we're being watched. We must demonstrate that there is no yellow in the Ankh-Morpork flag. <clears throat> there is, said Vimes. It's on the owl and the collars of the hippos. I mean, said Inigo, that the colours of Ankh-Morpork do not run. Only since we got the new dyes, said Vimes. All right, all right, I know what you mean. But look, I'm not risking the servants if there's any danger. And there's to be no arguing, understand? They can stay here and take the mail coach tomorrow. No one attacks the mail coaches any more. I suggest Lady Sybil remains here too, sir. <clears throat> Absolutely not, said Sybil. I wouldn't hear of it. If it's not too dangerous for Sam, it's not too dangerous for me. I wouldn't argue with her if I was you, said Vimes to Inigo. I really wouldn't. The wolf was not very happy about being tethered to a tree, but, as Gaspode said, never trust nobody. They'd paused a while in a wood about five miles from the town. 
It'll be a brief stop, Carrot had said. Some of the people in the square looked the sort who treasured their lack of a sense of humour. After some barking and growling, Gaspode said, You've got to understand that Matey is personally known gratis in local wolf society, being a bit of a ha-ha lone wolf. Yes? Carrot was taking the roast chickens out of their sack, Gaspode's eyes fixed on them. But he hears the howling at night. Ah, wolves communicate. Basically, your wolf howl is just another way of pissing against a tree to say it's your damn tree. But there's always a bit of news, too. Something nasty's happening in Ubervelt. He doesn't know what. Gaspode lowered his voice. Between you and me, our friend here was well behind the door when the brains was handed out. If wolves was people, he'd be like foul old Ron. What's his name? said Carrot thoughtfully. Gaspode gave Carrot a look. Cared what a wolf was called. Wolf names is difficult, he said. More like a, a description, see? It's not like calling yourself Mr Snuggles or Bonzo, you understand? Yes, I know, so what is his name? You want to know what his name is, then? Yes, Gaspode. So, in fact, it's the name of this wolf you want to know. That is correct. Gaspode shifted uneasily. Arsole, he said. Oh. To the dog's frank astonishment, Carrot blushed. That's basically a summary, but it's a pretty good translation, he said. I wouldn't have mentioned it, but you did ask. Gaspode stopped and whined for a moment, trying to convey the message that he was losing his voice due to lack of chicken. Er, uh, there's been a lot on the howl about Angua, he went on when Carrot seemed unable to take the hint. Uh, they think she's bad news. Why, she's travelling as a wolf, after all. Wolves hate werewolves. What? That can't be right. When she's wolf-shaped, she's just like a wolf. So? When she's human-shaped, she's just like a human. And what's that got to do with anything? Humans don't like werewolves. Wolves don't like werewolves. People don't like wolves that can think like people. And people don't like people who can act like wolves. Which just shows you that people are the same everywhere, said Gaspode. He assessed this sentence and added, Even when they're wolves. I never thought of it like that. And she smells wrong. Wolves are very sensitive to that sort of thing. Tell me more about the howl. Oh, it's like the clacky thing. News gets spread for hundreds of miles. Do the howls mention her companion? Nah, if you like, I'll ask Ars... I'd prefer a different name if it's all the same to you said Carrot. Words like that aren't clever. Gaspode rolled his eyes. There's nothing wrong with the word amongst us pedestically gifted species, he said. We're very smell-oriented. He sighed. How about bum? In the sense of uh, migratory worker. He's a freelance chicken throttler style of thing. He turned to the wolf and spoke in canine. Now then, bum. This human is insane, and believe me, I know a mad human when I see one. He's frothing at the mouth inside, and he'll rip your hide off and nail it to a tree if you aren't straight with us, understand? What was that you're telling him? said Carrot. Just explaining we're friends, said Gaspode. To the carrying wolf, he barked. OK, he's probably going to do that anyway, but I can talk to him, so your only chance is to tell us everything. No, nothing, the wolf whined. She was with a big he-wolf from Uberwald, from the clan that smells like this. Gaspode sniffed. He's a long way from home, then. He's a bad news wolf. 
Tell it there'll be roast chicken for its trouble, said Carrot. Gaspode sighed. It was a hard life being an interpreter. All right, he growled. I'll persuade him to untie you. It'll take some doing, mark you. If he offers you a chicken, don't take it, cos it'll be poisoned. Humans, eh? Carrot watched the wolf flee. Odd, he said. You'd have thought it'd be hungry, wouldn't you? Gaspode looked up from the roast chicken. Wolves, eh? he said indistinctly. That night, when they heard the wolves howling in the distant mountains, Gaspode picked up one solitary, lonely howl behind them. The towers followed them up into the mountains, although, Vimes noticed, there were some differences in construction. Down on the plains they were more or less just a high wooden gantry with a shed at the bottom, but here, although the design was the same, it was clearly temporary. Next to it, Men were at work on a heavy stone base, fortifications, he realised, which meant that he really was beyond the law. Of course, technically, he'd been beyond his law since leaving Ankh-Morpork, but law was where you could make it stick, and these days a City Watch badge could at least earn respect, if not actual cooperation, everywhere on the plains. Up here, it was just an ugly brooch. Slake turned out to be a stone-walled coaching inn and not much else, it had, Vimes noticed, very heavy shutters on the windows. It also had what he thought was a strange iron griddle over the fireplace, until he recognised it for what it was, a sort of portcullis that could block off the chimney. This place expected to withstand the occasional siege that might include enemies who could fly. It was sleeting when they went out to the coaches. Now, storm's closing in, <clears throat> said Inigo. We'll have to hurry. Why? said Sybil. The pass will probably be closed for several days, your ladyship. If we wait, we may even miss the coronation. And uh, there may be slight bandit activity. Slight bandit activity, said Vimes. Yes, sir. You mean they wake up and decide to go back to bed, or they just steal enough for a cup of coffee? Very droll, sir. They do notoriously take hostages. Bandits don't frighten me, said Sybil. If I may, Inigo began. Mr. Skimmer, said Lady Sibyl, drawing herself up to her full width, I did in fact just tell you what we are going to do. See to it, please. There are servants in the consulate, aren't there? There is one, I believe. Then we shall happily make shift as best we can, won't we, Sam? Certainly, dear. It was seriously snowing by the time they left, in great feather lumps, which fell with a faint, damp hiss, muffling all other sound. Vimes wouldn't have known that they'd reached the pass if the coaches hadn't stopped. "'The coach with your men on it should go in front,' said Inigo, as they stood in the snow beside the steaming horses. "'We should follow close behind. I'll ride with our driver, just in case.' "'So that if we're attacked by anyone, you can give them a potted summary of the political situation,' said Vimes. "'No.' You will ride inside with Lady Sybil, and I'll ride on the box. Got to protect the civilians, eh? Your Grace, I... But your suggestion is much appreciated, Vimes went on. You get inside, Mr Skimmer. The man opened his mouth. Vimes raised an eyebrow. Very well, Your Grace, but it is extremely... Good, man. I should like my leather case down from the roof, though. Certainly. A bit of fact-finding will take your mind off things. Vimes walked forward to the other carriage, poked his head inside and said, 
We're going to be ambushed, lads. That's interesting, said Detritus. He grunted slightly as he wound the windlass of his crossbow. Oh, said Cheery. I don't think they'll try and kill us, I went on. Does that mean we don't try to kill them? Use your own judgment. Detritus sighted along a thick bundle of arrows. They were his idea. Since his giant crossbow was capable of sending an iron bolt through the gates of a city under siege, he had felt it was rather a waste to use it on just one person. So he'd adapted it to fire a sheaf of several dozen arrows all at once. The threads holding them together were supposed to snap under acceleration. They did so. Quite often the arrows also shattered in mid-air as they failed to withstand the enormous pressure. He called it the Peacemaker. He'd only tried it once, down at the butts. Vimes had seen a target vanish. So had the targets on either side of it, the earth bank behind it, and a spiralling cloud of feathers floating down had been all that remained of a couple of seagulls who had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. In this instance, the wrong place had been directly above Detritus. Now no other watchman would go on patrol with the troll unless they could stay at least a hundred yards directly behind him. But the test had the desired effect, because someone saw everything in Ankh-Morpork, and news about the targets had got around. Now, just the knowledge that Detritus was on his way cleared a street much faster than any weapon. "'I got lots of judgment,' he said. "'You be careful with that thing,' said Vimes. "'You could hurt someone.' The party started out again through the swirls of snow. Vimes made himself comfortable amongst the luggage, lit a cigar, and then, when he was sure that the rattling of the coach would mask the sounds, rummaged further under the tarpaulin and drew out Inigo's cheap, scarred leather case. From his pocket, he took a small roll of black cloth and unrolled it on his knee. Intricate little lockpicks glinted for a moment in the light of the coach lamps. A good copper has to be able to think like a criminal. Vimes was a very good copper. He was also a very alive copper, and intended to remain that way. That was why, when the case's lock went click, he laid it down on the shaking roof with its lid opening away from him and, leaning back, carefully lifted the lid with his boot. A long blade flicked out. It would have terminally ruined the digestion of a casual thief. Someone obviously expected very bad hotel security on this journey. Vimes carefully eased it back into its spring-loaded sheath, looked upon the contents of the case smiled in a not very happy way and carefully lifted out something that gleamed with the silvery light of carefully designed, beautifully engineered and very compact evil. He thought, sometimes it would be nice to be wrong about people. Gaspode knew they were in the high foothills now. Places to buy food were getting scarce. However carefully Carrot knocked at the door of some isolated farmstead, he'd end up having to talk to people who were hiding under the bed. People here were not used to the idea of muscular men with swords who were actually anxious to buy things. In the end, it generally worked out quicker to walk in, go through the contents of the pantry and leave some money on the table for when the people came up out of the cellar. It had been two days since the last cottage, and there had been so little there that Carrot, to Gaspode's disgust, had just left some money. The forest thickened, Alder became pine. There were snow showers every night. The stars were pinpoints of frost. And, colder and harder, rising with the sunset, was the howl. 
it went up on every side a great mournful ululation across the freezing forests. They're so close I can smell them, said Gaspode. They've been shadowing us for days. There has never been an authenticated case of an unprovoked wolf attacking an adult human being, said Carrot. They were both huddling under his cloak. After a while, Gaspode said, And that's good, is it? What do you mean? Well, of course, us dogs only has little brains, but it seems to me that what you just said was pretty much the same as saying no unprovoking adult human being has ever returned to tell the tale, right? I mean, your wolf has just got to make sure they kill people in quiet places where no one will ever know, yes? More snow settled on the cloak. It was large and heavy, and a relic of many a long night in the Ankh-Morpork rain. In front of it, a fire flickered and hissed. I wish you hadn't said that, Gaspard. These were big, serious flakes of snow. Winter was moving fast down the mountains. You wish I hadn't said it. But, no, I'm sure there's nothing to be afraid of. A drift had nearly covered the cloak. You shouldn't have traded the oars for those snowshoes back at the last place, said Gaspard. The poor thing was done in. Anyway, it wasn't exactly a trade. The people wouldn't come down out of the chimney. They did say to take anything we wanted. They said to take everything, only spare their lives. Yes, I don't know why I smiled at them. There was a doggy sigh. Trouble is, see, you could carry me on the horse, but this is deep snow and I'm a little doggy. My problems are closer to the ground. I hope I don't have to draw you a picture. I've got some spare clothes in my pack. I might be able to make you a coat. A coat wouldn't do the trick. Another howl began quite close this time. The snow was falling a lot faster. The hissing of the fire turned to a sizzle. Then it went out. Gaspode was not good at snow. It was not a precipitation he normally had to face. In the city there was always somewhere warm if he knew where to look. Anyway, snow only stayed snow for an hour or two, then it became brown slush and was trodden into the general slurry of the streets. Streets. Gaspode really missed streets. He could be wise on streets. Out here he was dumb on mud. Fire's gone out, he said. There was no answer from Carrot. Fire's gone out, I said. This time there was a snore. Hey, you can't go to sleep, Gaspode whined. Not now, we'll freeze to death. The next voice in the howl seemed only a few trees away. Gaspode thought he could see dark shapes in the endless curtain of snow. If we're lucky, he mumbled. He licked Carrot's face, a move that usually resulted in the licky chasing Gaspode down the street with a broom. There was merely another snore. Gaspode's mind raced. Of course, he was a dog, and dogs and wolves, well, they were the same, right? Everyone knew that. So said a treacherous inner voice. Maybe it wasn't exactly Gaspode and Carrot in trouble. Maybe it was only Carrot. Yeah, right on, brothers. Let us join together in wild runs in the moonlight. But first, let us eat this monkey. On the other paw, he'd got hard pad, soft pad, the swinge, licky end, scroff, mange, and something rather strange on the back of his neck that he couldn't quite reach. Gaspode somehow couldn't imagine the wolves saying, Hey, he's one of us. Besides, 
while he'd begged, fought, tricked and stolen, he'd never actually been a bad dog. You needed to be a moderately good theological disputant to accept this, especially since a fair number of sausages and prime cuts had disappeared from butcher's slabs in a blur of grey and a lingering odour of lavatory carpet. But nevertheless, Gaspode was clear in his own mind that he'd never crossed the boundary from merely being a naughty boy. He'd never bitten a hand that fed him. After all, this made it so much harder for the hand to feed you tomorrow. He'd never done it on the carpet. He'd never shirked a duty. It was a bugger, but there you were. It was a dog thing. He whined when the ring of dark shapes closed in. Eyes gleamed. He whined again and then growled as unseen fanged death surrounded him. This was clearly impressing no one, not even Gaspode. He wagged his tail nervously. Just passing through, he said in a strangulatedly cheerful voice. No trouble to anyone. There was a definite feeling that the shadows beyond the snowflakes were getting more crowded. So, have you had your holidays yet? he squeaked. This also did not appear to be well received. Well, this was it then. Famous last stand. Plucky dog defends his master. What a good dog. Shame there'd be no one left to tell anyone. He barked, Mine! Mine! and leapt snarling towards the nearest shape. A huge paw swatted him out of the air and then pinned him down, spread-eagled in the snow. He looked up, past white fangs and a long muzzle, into eyes that seemed familiar. Mine! growled the wolf. It was anger. The coaches slowed to a walk on a road that was rough with potholes under the unbroken snow, every one a wheel-breaking trap in the dark. Vimes nodded to himself when he saw lights flickering beside the road a few miles into the pass. On either side, old landslides had formed banks of scree down which the forests had spilled. He dropped quietly off the back of the coach and vanished into the shadows. The leading coach stopped at a log which had been dropped across the road. There was some movement, and then the driver swung himself down into the mud and set off at a dead run back down the pass. Figures moved out of the trees. One of them stopped at the door of the first coach and tried the handle. For a moment, the world held its breath. The figures must have sensed it, because the man was already leaping aside when there was a click and the whole door and its surrounding frame blew outwards in a cloud of splinters. The thing about fires, Vimes had once observed, was that only an idiot got between them and a troll holding a £2,000 crossbow. All hell hadn't been let loose, it was merely detritus. But from a few feet away, you couldn't tell the difference. Another figure reached for the door of the second coach just before Vimes fired out of the darkness and hit his shoulder with a butcher's sound. Then Inigo dived out through the window, rolled with unclerk-like grace as he hit the ground, rose in front of one of the bandits and brought his hand around edge first on the man's neck. Vimes had seen this trick before. Usually, it just made people angry. Occasionally, it managed an incapacitating blow. He'd never seen it remove a head. Everybody stop! Sibyl was pushed out of the coach. Behind her, a man stepped out. He was holding a crossbow. Your Grace Vimes, he shouted. The word bounced back and forth between the cliffs. I know you're here, Your Grace Vimes, and here is your lady. And there are many of us. Come out, Your Grace Vimes. Flakes of snow hissed over the fires. There was a whisper in the air, followed by a second smack of steel into muscle. 
one of the hooded figures collapsed into the mud, clutching at his leg. Inigo got slowly to his feet. The man holding the crossbow appeared not to notice. It is like chess, your grace vimes. We have disarmed the troll and the dwarf, and I have the queen. And if you shoot at me, can you be sure I won't have time to fire? Firelight glowed on the twisted trees bordering the road. Several seconds passed. Then the sound of Vimes's crossbow landing in the circle of light was very loud. Well done, your grace, Vimes, and now yourself, if you please. Inigo made out the shape that appeared at the very edge of the light, with both hands up. Are you all right, Sybil? said Vimes. A bit cold, Sam. You're not hurt? No, Sam. Keep your hands where I can see them, your grace, Vimes. And are you going to promise me you'll let her go? said Vimes. A flame flickered near Vimes's face, a bright pool in the darkness, as he lit a cigar. Now, your grace, Vimes, why ever should I do that? But I'm sure Ankmore Pork will pay a lot for you. Ah, uh, I thought so, said Vimes. He shook the match out, and the cigar end glowed for a moment. Sibyl? Yes, Sam? Duck. There was a second filled only with the indrawing of breath, and then, as Lady Sybil dived forward, Vimes's hand came around from behind him in an arc, there was a silken sound, and the man's head was flung back. Inigo leapt and caught the man's crossbow as it was dropped, then rolled and came up firing, another figure staggered. Vimes was aware of a commotion elsewhere as he grabbed Sybil and helped her back into the coach. Inigo had vanished, but a scream in the dark didn't sound like anyone Vimes knew. And then only the hiss of snow in the fire. "'I think they're gone, sir,' said Cheery's voice. "'Not as fast as us, detritus?' "'Sir, are you okay?' "'Feeling very tactful, sir.' "'You two take that coach. I'll take this, and let's get the hell out of here, shall we?' "'Where's Mr Skimmer?' said Sybil. There was another scream from the woods. "'Forget him.' "'But he's—' "'Forget him.' The snow was falling thicker as they climbed the pass, the deep snow dragged at the wheels, and all Vimes could see were the darker shapes of the horses against the whiteness. Then the clouds parted briefly, and he wished they hadn't, because here they revealed that the darkness on the left of him was no longer rock but a sheer drop. At the top of the pass, the lights of an inn glowed out onto the thickening snow. Vimes drove the carriage into the yard. Detritus? Sir? I'll watch our backs. Make sure this place is OK, will you? Yes, sir. The troll jumped down, slotting a fresh bundle of arrows into the peacemaker. Vimes spotted his intention just in time. Just knock, Sergeant. Right you are, sir. The troll knocked and entered. The buzz of sound from inside suddenly ceased. Vimes heard, muffled by the door, The Duke of Ankh-Morpork is coming in. Anyone have a problem with this? Just say the word. And in the background, the little humming, singing noise the peacemaker made under tension. Vimes helped Sybil down from the coach. "'How do you feel now?' he said. She smiled faintly. "'I think this dress will have to go for dusters,' she said. She smiled a little more when she saw his expression. "'I knew you'd come up with something, Sam. You go all slow and cold, and that means something really dreadful is going to happen. I wasn't frightened.' "'Really? I was scared sh uh, stiff.' said Vimes. What happened to Mr Skimmer? I remember him rummaging in his case and cursing. 
I expect Inigo Skimmer is alive and well, said Vimes grimly, which is more than can be said for those around him. There was silence in the main room of the inn. A man and a woman, presumably the landlord and his wife, were standing flat against the back of the bar. The dozen or so other occupants lined the walls, hands in the air. Beer dribbled from a couple of spilled mugs. Everything normal and peaceful, said Detritus, turning round. Vimes realised that everyone was staring at him. He looked down. His shirt was torn, mud and blood caked his clothes. Melted snow dripped off him. In his right hand, unregarded, he was still holding the crossbow. Bit of trouble on the road, he said. Er, uh, you know how it is. No one moved. Oh, good gods, detritus, put that damn thing down, will you? Right, sir. The troll lowered his crossbow. Two dozen people all began to breathe again. Then the skinny woman stepped around him from behind the bar, nodded at Vimes, carefully took Lady Sybil's hand from his, and pointed towards the wide wooden stairs. The black look she gave Vimes puzzled him. Only then did he realise that Lady Sybil was shaking. Tears were running down her face. And, uh, my wife is a bit shaken up, he said weakly. Corporal Littlebottom, he yelled to cover his confusion. Cheery stepped through the doorway. Go with Lady Sib... He stopped because of the rising hubbub. One or two people pointed. Someone laughed. Cheery stopped, looking down. What's up? Vimes hissed. Er, uh, it's me, sir. Ankmore pork dwarf fashions haven't really caught on here, sir, said Cheery. The skirt, said Vimes. Yes, sir. Vimes looked around at the faces. They seemed more shocked than angry, although he spotted a couple of dwarfs in one corner who were definitely unhappy. Go with Lady Sybil, he repeated. It might not be a very good idea, Cheery began. God damn it, shouted Vimes, unable to stop himself. The crowd went silent. A ragged, blood-stained madman holding a crossbow can command a rapt audience. Then he shuddered. What he wanted now was a bed. But what he wanted before bed more than anything, was a drink. And he couldn't have one. He'd learned that long ago. One drink was one too many. All right, tell me, he said. All dwarfs are men, sir, said Cherry. I mean, traditionally. That's how everyone thinks of it up here. Well, stand outside the door or... or shut your eyes or something, OK? Vimes lifted Lady Sybil's chin. Are you all right, dear? he said. Sorry to let you down, Sam, she whispered. It was just so awful. Vimes, designed by nature to be one of those men unable to kiss their own wives in public, patted her helplessly on the shoulder. She thought she'd let him down. It was unbearable. You just, I mean, cheery will, uh, and I'll sort things out and be along right away, he said. We'll get a good bedroom, I suspect. She nodded, still looking down. And I'm just going out for some fresh air. Vimes stepped outside. The snow had stopped for now. The moon was half hidden by clouds and the air smelled of frost. When the figure dropped down from the eaves, it was amazed at the way Vimes spun and rushed it bodily against the wall. Vimes looked through a red mist at the moonlit face of Inigo Skimmer. I'll damn well, he began. Look down, your grace, said Skimmer. <coughs> Vimes realised he could feel the faintest prick of a knife blade on his stomach. Look down further, he said. 
Inigo looked down. He swallowed. Vimes had a knife too. You really are no gentleman, then, he said. Make a sudden move, and neither are you, said Vimes. And now, it appears, we have reached what Sergeant Colon persists in referring to as an imp arse. I assure you that I will not kill you, said Inigo. I know that, said Vimes. But will you try? No, I'm here for your protection. <clears throat> Vetinari sent you, did he? You know we never divulge the name of... That's true, you people are very honourable, Vimes spat the word, in that respect. Both men relaxed a little. You left me alone, surrounded by enemies, said Inigo, but without much accusation in his tone. Why should I care what happens to a bunch of bandits, said Vimes. You're an assassin. How did you find out? <clears throat> a copper watches the way people walk. The Clatchians say a man's leg is his second face. Did you know that? And that little clarky I'm-so-harmless walk of yours is too good to be true. You mean that just from my walk you... No. You didn't catch the orange, said Vimes. Come, now. No, people either catch or flinch. You saw it wasn't a danger. And when I took your arm, I felt metal under your clothes. Then I just sent a clax back with your description. He let go of Inigo and walked over to the coach, leaving his back exposed. He took something down from the box and came back and waved it at the man. I know this is yours, he said. I pinched it out of your luggage. If I ever catch anyone with one of these Nankmore pork, I will make their life a complete misery, as only a copper knows how. Is that understood? If you ever catch anyone with one of these Nankmore pork, Your Grace, <clears throat> they will still be lucky that the Assassin's Guild didn't find them first. <clears throat> they are on our forbidden list within the city, but we're a long way from Nankmore pork now. <clears throat> Vimes turned the thing over and over in his hands. It looked vaguely like a long-handled hammer, or perhaps a strangely made telescope. What it was, basically, was a spring. That's all a crossbow was, after all. It's a devil to load, he said. I nearly ruptured myself, cocking it against a rock. You'd only get one shot. But it's the shot no one expects. <clears throat> Vimes nodded. You could even conceal this thing down your pants although the thought of all that coiled power so close would require nerves of steel and other parts of steel too, if it came to that. This is not a weapon. This is for killing people, he said. Yeah, most weapons are, said Inigo. No, they're not. They're so you don't have to kill people. They're for... for having. For being seen. For warning. This isn't one of those. It's for hiding away until you bring it out and kill people in the dark. And where's that other thing? Your Grace? The palm dagger, don't try to lie to me. Inigo shrugged. The movement shot something silver out of his sleeve. It was a carefully shaped blade, padded on one side, which slid along the edge of his hand. There was a click from somewhere inside his jacket. Good gods, breathed Vimes. Do you know how often people have tried to assassinate me, man? Mm, yes, Your Grace, nine times. The Guild has set your fee at six hundred thousand dollars. The last time an approach was made, no Guild member volunteered. <clears throat> ha! Incidentally, and 
Very informally, of course, we would appreciate knowing the whereabouts of the body of the Honourable Eustace Bassingley Gore. <coughs> Vimes scratched his nose. Was he the one who tried to poison my shaving cream? Yes, Your Grace. Well, unless his body is an extremely strong swimmer, it's still on a ship bound for Gat via Cape Terror, said Vimes. I paid the captain a thousand dollars not to take the chains off before Zambingo, too. That'll give it a nice long walk home through the jungles of Clatch, where I'm sure its knowledge of rare poisons will come in very handy. Although not as handy, perhaps, as a knowledge of antidotes. A thousand dollars? Well, he had twelve hundred dollars on him. I donated the rest to the Sunshine Sanctuaries for Sick Dragons. I got a receipt, by the way. You chaps are keen on receipts, I think. You... "'Stole his money?' <clears throat> Vimes took a deep breath. His voice, when it emerged, was flat calm. "'I wasn't going to waste any of my own, "'and he had just tried to kill me. "'Think of it as an investment, for the good of his health. "'Of course, if in due course he cares to come and see me, "'I shall make sure he gets what's coming to him. "'I'm astounded, Your Grace.' <clears throat> Bassingley Gore was an extremely competent swordsman. Really, I generally never wait to find out about that sort of thing. Inigo smiled his thin little smile. And two months ago, Sir Richard Liddledley was found tied to a fountain in Sator Square, painted pink and with a flag stuck. I was feeling generous, said Vimes. I'm sorry, I don't play your games. Assassination is not a game, Your Grace. It is the way you people play it. There have to be rules. Otherwise there would just be anarchy. <clears throat> you have your code, and we have ours. And you've been sent here to protect me? I have other skills, but yes. What makes you think I'll need you? Well, Your Grace, here they don't have rules. <clears throat> I've spent most of my life dealing with people who don't have rules. Yes, of course. But when you kill them, they don't get up again. I've never killed anyone, said Vimes. You shot that bandit in the throat. I was aiming for the shoulder. Yes, the thing does pull to the left, said Inigo. You mean that you have never tried to kill anyone. I have, on the other hand, and here hesitation may not be an option. I didn't hesitate, Inigo sighed. In the Guild, Your Grace, we don't... Grandstand. Grandstand? That business with the cigar? Oh, you mean when I shut my eyes and they had to look at the flame in the darkness? Ah, Indigo hesitated. But they might have shot you there and then. Now, nah, I wasn't a threat, and you heard his voice. I hear that sort of voice a lot. He's not going to shoot people too soon and spoil the fun. I can assume you have not got a contract on me. That is correct. And you'd still swear to that? On my honour as an assassin. Yes, said Vimes. That's where I hit a difficulty, of course. And I don't know how to put this in a go, but you don't act like a typical assassin. Lord this, sir that. The Guild is the school for gentlemen, but you... And God knows I don't mean any offence here. Are not exactly... Inigo touched his forelock. Scholarship boy, sir, he said. My gods, yes, thought Vimes. You can find your average amateur killers on every street. 
They're mostly deranged or drunk or some poor woman who's had a hard day and the husband has raised his hand once too often and suddenly twenty years of frustration takes over. Killing a stranger without malice or satisfaction, other than the craftsman's pride in a job well done, is such a rare talent that armies spend months trying to instil it into their young soldiers. Most people will shy away from killing people they haven't been introduced to. The Guild had to have one or two people like Inigo. Didn't some philosophical bastard once say that a government needed butchers as well as shepherds? He indicated the little crossbow. All right, take it, he said. But you can put the word about that if I ever, ever see one on the street, the owner will find it put where the sun does not shine. Ah, said Inigo, that's the amusingly named place in Lanka, isn't it? It's only about fifty miles from here, I believe. <clears throat> Rest assured that I can find a shortcut. Gaspode tried blowing in Carrot's ear again. Time to wake up, he growled. Carrot opened his eyes, blinked the snow out of them, and then tried to move. You just lie still, right? said Gaspode. If it helps, try thinking of them as a very heavy eider down. Carrot struggled feebly. The wolves piled on top of him, shifted position. Warming you up a treat, said Gaspode, grinning nervously. A wolf blanket, see? Of course, you're going to be a bit whiffy for a while, but better to be itchy than dead, eh? He scratched an ear industriously with a hind leg. One of the wolves growled at him. Sorry, grub'll be up in a minute. Food? muttered Carrot. Angua appeared in Carrot's vision, dressed in a leather shirt and leggings. She stood looking down at him, hands on her hips. To Gaspode's amazement, Carrot actually managed to push himself up on his elbows, dislodging several wolves. You were tracking us, he said. No, they were, said Angua. They thought you were a bloody fool. I heard it on the howl. And they were right. You haven't eaten anything for three days. And up here, winter doesn't drop a few hints over a month or so. It turns up in one night. Why were you so stupid? Gaspode looked around the clearing. Angua had rekindled the fire. Gaspode wouldn't have believed it if he hadn't seen it. But actual wolves had dragged in actual fallen wood for her. And then another had turned up with a small deer still fat after the autumn. He dribbled at the smell of it roasting. Something human and complicated was going on between Carrot and Angua. It sounded like an argument, but it didn't smell like one. Anyway, recent events all made perfect sense to Gaspard. The female ran away, and the male chased her. That's how it went. Actually, it was usually about twenty males of all sizes, but obviously, Gaspard conceded, things were a bit different for humans. Pretty soon, he reckoned, Carrot would notice the big male wolf sitting by the fire. And then the fur would fly. Humans, eh? Gaspode wasn't sure of his own ancestry. There was some terrier, and a touch of spaniel, and probably someone's leg, and an awful lot of mongrel. But he took it as an article of faith that there was in all dogs a tiny bit of wolf, and his was urgently sending messages that the wolf by the fire was one you didn't even stare directly at. It wasn't that the wolf was obviously vicious. He didn't need to be. Even sitting still, he radiated the assurance of competent power. Gaspode was, if not the victor, then at least the survivor of many a street fight, and as such, he would not have gone against this animal, even if backed up by a couple of lions and a man with an axe. Instead, 
he sidled over to a female wolf who was watching the fire haughtily. Yo, bitch, he said. What was that? Gaspode reconsidered his strategy. Uh, hi, foxy uh, wolf lady, he tried. A certain lowering of the temperature suggested that this one hadn't worked either. Hello, miss, he said hopefully. Her muzzle turned to point at him. Her eyes narrowed. What are you? Ice slithered off every syllable. Gaspode's the name, barked Gaspode, with insane cheerfulness. My dog. Uh, it's a kind of wolf sort of thing. So what's your name then? Go away. No offence, men. Here, I heard tell wolves mate for life, right? Well, wish I could. Gaspode froze as the she-wolf's muzzle snapped an inch from his nose. Where I come from, we eat things like you, she said. Fair enough, fair enough, muttered Gaspode, backing away. I don't know, you try to be friendly and this is what you get. Nearer the fire, the humans were getting complicated. Gaspode slunk back and lay down. You could have told me, Carrot was saying. It would have taken too long. You always want to understand things. Anyway, it's none of your business. This is family. Carrot waved a hand towards the wolf. He's a relative, he said. No, he's a friend. Gaspode's ears waggled. He thought, whoops. He's very big for a wolf, said Carrot slowly, as if filing new information. He's a very big wolf, said Angua, shrugging. Another werewolf? No. Just a wolf. Yes, said Angua sarcastically, just a wolf. And his name is? He would not object to being called Gavin. Gavin? He once ate someone called Gavin. What, all of him? Of course not. Just enough to make certain that the man set no more wolf traps. Angua smiled. Gavin is quite unusual. Carrot looked at the wolf and smiled. He picked up a piece of wood and tossed it gently towards him. The wolf snapped it, dog-like, out of the air. I'm sure we'll be friends, he said. Angus sighed. Wait. Gaspode, the unheeded spectator, watched as Gavin, without taking his eyes off Carrot, very slowly bit the wood in two. Carrot, said Angus sweetly, don't do that again. Gavin isn't even in the same clan as these wolves, and he took over the pack without anyone even whining. He's not a dog, and he's a killer, Carrot. Oh, don't look like that. I don't mean he pounces on wandering kids or eats up the odd grandmother. I mean that if he thinks a human ought to die, that human is dead. He will always, always fight. He's very uncomplicated like that. He's an old friend, said Carrot. Yes. A uh, friend? Yes. Angua rolled her eyes and said, in a voice of sing-song sarcasm, I was out in the woods one day and I fell into some old pit trap under the snow, and some wolves found me and would have killed me, but Gavin turned up and faced them down. Don't ask me why. People do things sometimes, so do wolves. End of story. Gaspard said wolves and werewolves don't get on, said Carrot patiently. He's right. If Gavin wasn't here, they'd have torn me to pieces. I can look like a wolf, but I'm not a wolf.
I'm a werewolf. I'm not a human either. I'm a werewolf, get it? You know some of the remarks people make? Well, wolves don't make remarks. They go for the throat. Wolves have got a very good sense of smell. You can't fool it. I can pass for human, but I can't pass for wolf. I never thought of it like that. I mean, you would just think that wolves and werewolves... That's how it is, sighed Angua. You said this was family, said Carrot, as if working down a mental checklist. I meant it's personal. Gavin came all the way into Ankh-Morpork to warn me. He even slept on the timber wagons during the day so that he'd keep moving. Can you imagine how much nerve that took? It's got nothing to do with the watch. It's got nothing to do with you. Carrot looked around. The snow was falling again, turning into rain above the fire. I'm here now. Go away. Please, I can sort this out. And then you'll come back to Ankh-Morpork afterwards? I... Angua hesitated. I think I should stay, said Carrot. Look, the city needs you, said Angua. You know Vimes relies on... I resigned. For a moment, Gaspode thought he could hear the sound of every settling snowflake. Not really. Yes. And what did old Stoneface say? Er, uh, nothing. He'd already left for Uberwald. Vimes is coming to Uberwald. Yes, for the coronation. He's got mixed up in this, said Angua. Mixed up in what? Oh, my family's been... stupid. I'm not quite sure I know everything, but the wolves are worried. When werewolves make trouble, it's the real wolves that always suffer. People'll kill anything with fur. Angua stared at the fire for a moment and then said with forced brightness, So, who's been left in charge? I don't know. Fred Colon's got seniority. Ha! Yes, in his nightmares. Angua hesitated. You've really left? Yes. Oh. Gaspode listened to some more snowflakes. Well, you won't get far by yourselves now, said Angua, standing up. Rest for another hour, and then we'll be going through the deep forest. Not too much snow there yet. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I hope you can keep up. At breakfast early next morning, Vimes noticed that the other guests were keeping so far away from him that they were holding on to the walls. The men who went out came back around midnight, sir, said Cheery quietly. Did they catch anyone? Um, sort of, sir. They found seven dead bodies. Seven? They think some others might have got away, but there's a path at the rocks. But seven? Detritus got one, and I got one, and a couple were wounded, and Inigo got one. Vimes's voice tailed off. He stared at Inigo's skimmer, who was sitting on the other side of the room at a crowded public table. The places around Vimes and Lady Sybil were deserted. Sybil had put this down to deference. The little man was eating soup in a neat little self-contained world among the waving arms and intrusive elbows. He'd even tucked a napkin under his chin. They were very dead, sir, Cheery whispered. Well, that was interesting, said Sybil, wiping her mouth delicately. I've never had soup with sausages in it for breakfast before. What is it called, Cheery? Fat soup, your ladyship, said Cheery. It means fat soup. We're close to the Schmalzberg fat layers now, and, well, it's nourishing and keeps out the cold. How very interesting. Lady Sybil looked at her husband. He hadn't taken his eyes off Inigo. 
The door opened and Detritus ducked inside, banging snow off his knuckles. It's not too bad, he said. They say it'd be a good idea to make an early start, sir. I bet they do, said Vimes, and thought. They don't want someone like me hanging around. There's no knowing who'll die next. Several faces he vaguely recalled from last night were missing now. Presumably some travellers had started off even earlier, which meant that the news was probably running ahead of him. He'd staggered in, covered in blood and mud, carrying a crossbow, and, do you know, when they went back to look there were seven dead men. By the time that sort of story had gone ten miles he'd be carrying an axe as well, and make that thirty dead men and a dog. The diplomatic career had certainly got off to a good start, eh? As they got into the coach, he saw the little dart stuck in the front door jamb. It was metallic, with metal fins, and overall had a look of speed as if, when you touched it, you'd burn your fingers. He walked around to the back of the coach. There was another, much larger arrow high in the woodwork. "'They tried to catch up with you on the upgrade,' said Inigo behind him. "'You killed them. Some got away. I'm surprised. I've only got one pair of hands, Your Grace.' Vimes glanced up at the inn sign. Crudely painted on the boards was a large red head, complete with trunk and tusks. "'This is the Inn of the Fifth Elephant,' said Inigo. "'You left the law behind when we passed Lanka, Your Grace. Here it's the law.' What you keep is what you can. What's yours is what you fight for. The fittest survive. Ank Morpork is pretty lawless too, Mr. Skimmer. Ank Morpork has many laws. It's just that people don't obey them, and that, Your Grace, is quite a different bowl of fat. <laughs> they set off in convoy. Detritus sat on the roof of the leading coach, which lacked a door and most of one side. The view was flat and white, a featureless expanse of snow. After a while, they passed a clax tower. Burn marks on one side of the stone base suggested that someone had thought that no news was good news. But the semaphore shutters were clacking and twinkling in the light. The whole world is watching, said Vimes. But it's never cared, said Skimmer, up until now, and now it wants to rip the top off the country and take what's underneath. <coughs> ah, thought Vimes, our killer clerk does have more than one emotion. Enk Morpork has always tried to get on well with other nations, said Sybil. Well, these days at least. I don't think we exactly try, dear, said Vimes. It's just that we found that... Why are we stopping? He pulled down the window. What's happening, Sergeant? Waiting for these dwarfs, sir, the troll called down. Several hundred dwarfs, four abreast, were trotting across the white plain towards them. There was, Vimes thought something very determined about them. Detritus? Yes, sir. Try not to look too troll-like, will you? Trying like hell, sir. The column was abreast of them before someone barked the command to halt. A dwarf detached himself from the rest and walked over to the coach. Tag good zook, he bellowed. Would you like me to take care of this, Your Grace? said Inigo. I'm the damned ambassador, said Vimes, and stepped down. "'Good morning, dwarf,' indicating miscreant. "'I am Overseer Vimes of the Look.' Lady Sybil heard Inigo give a little groan. "'Kurz... Grudazak yad "'Hang on, hang on, I know this one. "'I am sure you are a dwarf of no convictions. "'Let us shake our business, dwarf,' indicating miscreant. 
Yes, that will just about do it, I think, said Inigo. <coughs> the senior dwarf had gone red in those areas of his face that could be seen behind the hair. The rest of the squad were taking a renewed interest in the coach. The leader took a deep breath. Dukraha! Cheery dropped down from the coach. Her leather skirt flapped in the wind. As one dwarf, the column swivelled to stare at her. Their leader went pop-eyed. Erdan! Kura! Dukraha-ak! Vimes saw the expression that appeared on Cheery's small, round face. Above him, there was a clunk as Detritus rested the loaded peacemaker on the edge of the coach. I know dat word he said to her, he announced to the world. It is not a good word. I do not want to hear dat word again. Well, this is all very jolly, <coughs> said Inigo, getting down. And now, if everyone will just relax for a moment, we might get out of here alive. <coughs>